Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. We're going to read verses 25 through 37. You can find this in your bulletin on pages, page five, page five. This is God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on olive and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, please join me in prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us to be attentive, that you would remove the distractions, whatever we have going on after service, whatever we have running through our heads about the coming week, anything that would get in the way of us actually hearing and doing your word, we pray that you would remove the distractions, help us to focus, help us to lean into this. You transform lives through your word, and so we pray that you would do that this morning. Meet us in here, change us, equip us so that we may live lives in the kingdom that reflect the glory of the king. We pray for these things in Jesus name. Amen. Some rental car companies place a device inside the engines of their cars called a governor and a governor is placed inside the engine of a car in order to put a limit on on how much power and how much speed the vehicle can achieve. The, the, The car is actually capable of doing more, but the governor tamps it down. So when you step on the gas pedal, the car will not perform 
to its maximum potential because it's limited by a governor. The car was made for more by the manufacturer. And the only, the only people who can actually take the governor off are the ones who actually made the car. As I was thinking about this, I, I, I'm convinced that our Western American culture has put a governor on our hearts and minds. This cultural governor limits the speed and power of our neighbor love. When it comes to neighbor love, we live largely governed by American notions of freedom. Nobody, and I mean nobody, can tell me what to do with my life or my resources. How I live my life and how I make choices are my business. This is a free country. When it comes to neighbor love, our lives are largely governed by individualism. Everyone should be self-reliant and independent without need for anybody else. So if somebody winds up in a bad situation, well, they, they don't have any reason to, to expect that I'm obligated to help them. That's their business. That's their fault. That's, they got to deal with their own stuff. I shouldn't be responsible for them. Why should anyone think that I should have to put my goals and my ambitions and my dreams to the side in order to help them? When it comes to neighbor love, our lives are largely governed by materialism. If I help them, then how am I going to get the nice things that, that I want? I mean, do you know how much it costs me to live above my means and to enjoy the luxuries that I require? Do you know how much it costs me to keep up with the Joneses in this day and age? I mean, how am I going to get the iPhone 8 and pay the bill and help them? I'm just saying. I mean, I worked for every last bit of what I have and I deserve to enjoy it all myself. When it comes to neighbor love, our lives are largely governed by pragmatism. Pragmatism. It's not practical to think that, that I should have to show compassion to all the needy people I encounter. I mean, come on, be realistic. It's, it's not realistic for me to have to say no to myself so often in order to say yes to them. It's not practical. It's not, it's not realistic. Often, we're not asking the question, is it faithful? We're asking the question, is it practical? Something can be practical, but not faithful. And it can be faithful and not practical. This cultural expression of our sin limits the power of our neighbor love and it blunts the effect of our Christian witness to the gospel. We just don't perform to our maximum potential as God's people because of the governor. We were made for more. But in our text for today, Jesus shows us how he alone can remove the governor that limits our neighbor love. He's the one who's able to get the governor out of us so that we can live and love to our maximum capacity as a neighbor-loving people. He shows us how he can do this in an iconic parable that is known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to look at this parable. We're going to look at this text and we're going to, we're going to see two points. We're going to see the call to neighbor love 
and the cost of neighbor love. The call to neighbor love and the cost of neighbor love. So let's, let's look at our first point. The, the call to neighbor love. Now, our text, it doesn't have much lead up in terms of a context. We don't have much by way of a setting, but we're invited into a discussion that Jesus is having with a lawyer. Now, it's not a lawyer as we know lawyers today. This is an expert in Mosaic law. This is an expert in the scriptures. Okay, And Jesus is engaging him in a conversation about about what is a hot button issue. It's, It's one of the most important questions of the day. The most important question of the day. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It was this question that occupied rabbis and teachers of the day. This was a, this is a really important question for them. And the reason why it was an important question was because it, it told people where you were, where you stood. Were you, were you some kind of extremist, some kind of radical fringe teacher or were you orthodox? Did you, did you teach the faith as it was supposed to be taught according to the standards of orthodoxy at the time? It was, a, it was a question that tested where you were. And so in verses 26 through 27, Jesus responds to the question with a question about what the scriptures teach on the matter. All right. And the lawyer answers with the central confession of faithful Jews. Look at it. Verses 26, 26 through 27. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what do the scriptures say? And the man responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This was a standard response of Jewish orthodoxy. It was just basically pulling together the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, with uh, a portion of Leviticus 19, 18. Okay, not all of Leviticus 19 is supposed to be discarded, okay? Not any of it. Verse 28, Jesus replies to the man's answer, and he says, that's right. Do this and you will live. Now, by responding this way, Jesus shows that he honors Orthodox Jewish teaching on the on the matter of neighbor love. He he honors the teaching of his people. But then the lawyer asks a question and he just he just had to push it. Because now Jesus is going to dig in on him. He pushes it. The man says, and who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And here Jesus is going to press the lawyer to explore this idea of neighbor love more deeply. And we all need to explore this more deeply. Okay? This issue of neighbor love. And Jesus is pressing this man on his question. And here's why. Judaism recognized that if humans were created to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, then... They must also, in order to love God, they must love God's image, which are human beings. If you're going to love God in the most deep, heartfelt way, then you must love God's image. Just to use a simple illustration, if you love a band, 
then whenever you see their posters put up around the city because they're coming for a tour, you can't go out and spray paint over those posters and say, I love this band. The image of God is to be loved as an expression of love for God. Okay, they knew this. But they had two primary ways of getting around the requirement of neighbor love. They had two primary ways of getting around the requirement of neighbor love. They said, yes, we agree, this is the law. This is, this is what it means to have eternal life. But this is how they, they kind of rigged it. They rigged the system. And this is what they did. And you could call one isolationism, or isolation, and improvisation. These were the two ways that they got around the requirement of neighbor love. Isolationism. If I don't get out in the mix with sinful people, then I won't have to come across their path and then I won't, I won't really have to lean into this thing in, in all the ways that I might have to otherwise. Isolation says if I isolate myself from others then I don't need to involve myself with sinners. Or, or, or love those who are difficult to love. If I stay in my house, I'll never cr- come across the needy people out there that would be really a pain to love. Isolationism. But then there's the improvisation piece, okay? And, and this, this second way of, of getting around the full intent of the call to neighbor love is reflected in the lawyer's question in verse 29. And who is my neighbor? Now, it seems like an innocent question, right? Like the man's just trying to get clarification. But it's more than that. Luke gives us the man's intent in the beginning of verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself. This was the impulse behind the question. And who is my neighbor? He starts from the position of wanting to justify himself. This is not justification in the theological reform sense. This is, he wants to get an answer to the question that tells him that what he's currently doing is enough. Just tell me that what I'm doing is okay. He's trying to reduce the demands down to what he's currently doing. He's trying to get around the neighbor love requirement by shrinking the scope of his responsibility to his current practice. He's looking for the bare minimum requirement, lowering the bar so that he can say, I've done that, I've been obedient, and therefore I have warranted eternal life. Now in his mind, everybody couldn't be a neighbor. I mean, be reasonable, Jesus. Everybody can't be a neighbor. Definitely not those people who live in that neighborhood. They couldn't possibly be neighbors. Not the the racial others over there. They couldn't be neighbors. Not those with an ethnic distinction or, or, or who are lower on the socioeconomic spectrum outside of their ethnic group. They couldn't possibly be included in this group called neighbor. Definitely not sinners. Do you see in his mind there were neighbors and non-neighbors? He actually had a category of people that he could safely ignore. In fact, you can imagine that that during that day, uh, this man had come across someone who was a racial other in need. And he said, hmm, non-neighbor. 
come across someone who was an, an ethnic other in need and he said, hmm, non-neighbor. He had come across someone who was morally defiled. They were a, a known sinner and they were in need. And he said, non-neighbor. I'm pretty good at this neighbor love thing. Do you see? If you shrink down the circle of who is considered a neighbor, then of course you can be good at neighbor love. You just count all the difficult people outside of the scope of neighbor until you will it down. This is the best way I can think of it. Two years ago, my family plotted on me. For Christmas, they bought me a Fitbit. I ain't asked for no Fitbit. Nobody asked for no Fitbit. Now, if you don't know what a Fitbit is, it's a watch. You can see I ain't got it no more. A Fitbit is a little watch. And what it does is it counts your steps. Okay, now, now, now the, the program that comes with the Fitbit, it's automatically programmed to be in line with the American Heart Association that you have to walk 10,000 steps a day in order to be healthy. Now, Every day, I, I put the watch on, you know, it looks all right. You know, I was like, okay, I'm gonna put this thing on. And I'm walking, and I keep getting these notifications at the end of the day. You're just 9,000 steps from your goal. <laughs> I'm like, give me a break, I'm a pastor. I sit and read, okay? Every day, it told me of how short I was falling from the standard of 10,000 steps that the American Heart Association says, I have to do this in order to have a healthy heart. So you know what I did? I went in and changed it. I moved it down to a goal of 1,000 steps. And then every day it was telling me, awesome, you're on a roll. You are killing it. You are meeting your goal. And I had the nerve after a month to say, hey babe, 30 days of hitting my goal. You see, the standard of Fitbit did not suit me. So I just moved down the standard so that I could meet it. To fool myself into thinking I could have a healthy heart by walking a few steps a day. This is what the lawyer is doing here. He's moving down the bar so, so in order to say that he's meeting the requirement of having a healthy heart before God. That I love my neighbors. But anyone can move the goal and try to squeeze themselves in. But what we're going to see is that these, these, these two tricks were barriers to the kind of love, indiscriminate neighbor love that God was calling his people to embody. There were barriers to their ability to live up into the neighbor love. They too had governors on their hearts. But Jesus isn't going to let him off the hook. And he's not letting us off the hook either. He isn't going to allow him to soften the demands or to reason the demands away. Because automatically, I already know what you're thinking. Because you think like I think. We do the same thing. All of a sudden, we start doing the calculus. Well, how, how can I really get this thing into a reasonable place where I can, I can hit it? I mean, you can't really expect somebody to do this. <laughs> so Jesus... 
Jesus essentially says to man, I'm not going to allow you to have the category of non-neighbor at all. And he begins to tell the man a story. He moves in on the lawyer with what has become a classic parable. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And just so you know, for people at the time, Good Samaritan was an oxymoron. The Samaritans were those people. Good Samaritan was like saying jumbo shrimp. Good Samaritan was like saying Microsoft works. Ain't no such thing as a good Samaritan. This would have been very, very scandalous to them. All right? But Jesus chooses this man, this type, this Samaritan, in order to be the hero of his story. And this is what happens. He, he begins to tell the story of a certain man who's making the treacherous journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, it's about a 17-mile journey. And along this journey, it is rocky, steep. It goes from 2,800 feet above sea level to about 875 feet below sea level in the space of 17 miles. There are lots of caves where robbers can hide out to attack unsuspecting travelers. It's a dangerous way. It's scary. It cuts through the desert. It's a, it's a treacherous journey. And this man on his journey becomes the victim of a robbery. He becomes the victim of a crime. And these robbers, they not only rob him, but they strip him, they beat him, and then they leave him for dead. The text says they leave him half dead. What I want you to see is that the man is experiencing a social problem. Mark that in your mind. It's a social problem. And then Jesus begins to, to draw us in. What is the reaction to this scene going to be? Who will respond to this man in dire need? All of a sudden, a priest. A priest. There's a note of optimism here. The priest was an exemplary spiritual man. This was one of the heroes of Jewish society, the priest. Now, mind you, he's coming down from Jerusalem back to Jericho. That means he's coming from having done his service in the temple. If you will, he was a preacher who just finished getting down out of the pulpit from preaching a sermon. And he makes the journey back home to where he lives and he comes across this man. And everyone's thinking, yes, a priest. But the text says, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He passed by on the other side. Now, this is what I think is very powerful. We don't get any explanation for why he passed by on the other side. It really doesn't matter what his motives were. It doesn't matter what, what, what was really running through his mind. None of that matters. The point is that he gave no help and there's no excuse. No excuse is offered. None is given. You know, like he, you know, he was maybe trying to be faithful to the purity laws. Doesn't matter. He missed the weightier matter of the law, if that were the case. It doesn't matter if he was in a rush, a schedule, you know, work. It doesn't matter. 
Jesus doesn't care about all that. He doesn't offer an explanation for why the man passed. He just states that he did. No help given. Then the story continues. You have a Levite. More optimism, you would think. This is another one. He was like a junior priest. They, they helped with things in the temple. They were a part of showing mercy to those in the temple. And when this man sees the wounded traveler, he too passes by. The text gives us an indication that he may have looked a little bit closer than the priest. But that even makes it all the worse because he gave a little closer look. He saw that the man wasn't dead. He wasn't in danger of breaking purity laws for touching a dead body. He saw the man was still half alive and he rolled out. Another exemplary spiritual man walks by and the drama thickens. And, 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 and the drama thickens because this is what you need to see. Jesus is showing the lawyer what his what his outlook on neighboring looks like in story form. This is what your view of neighbor love looks like, Mr. Lawyer, and it's pretty ugly, isn't it? It's pretty disappointing. It doesn't look like something that God would sanction, does it, Mr. Lawyer? And as much as you try to shrink the neighbor love requirement down, this is the ugliness of it. This is what it looks like when you think that you can safely classify somebody as a non-neighbor. And as listeners... We are aching and wondering who will love this dying man? Who's going to love this man? Who's going to help him? Who's going to step in? And then Jesus makes a surprising turn. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan scandalized. Now you have to understand, according to Jewish tropes and teaching, they would have expected something that was anti-clerical, anti-pastoral. But an average everyday Israelite came by and showed up. But Jesus doesn't choose the average everyday Israelite. He chooses the one they would despise. He chooses the one they would think of as having the least amount of virtue. And he puts him as the hero. It's emphatic. And everything changes when this man arrives on the scene. But he's not what we expected. He's not who we expected. This is a completely unexpected climax for the lawyer. The despised person becomes the climax. The despised person comes to the rescue. The despised person outshines the best that the lawyer and his tribe had to offer. And by the time the story gets to this point, the call to neighbor love is landing forcefully upon the lawyer. And it should land upon us with even greater authority and force and lead us to repentance. How do you respond to the hurting, needy people that you regularly encounter? In a city, it's all intensified, right? How do you respond? What's your heart impulse? I think we have three primary emotional responses when we see people in need. And I think this will hit 100% of you in the room if counselors are anywhere in the ballpark. You either respond out of anger, you respond out of shame, or you respond out of fear. You're one of the three. And what I mean is this, some of you respond out of anger. 
you get really frustrated because this person is obviously not taking care of their business. And now their failure to take care of their business is impinging upon me. It's frustrating. Why can't they just take care of their business? Why did this have to happen to me right now at this time in this moment? Ah, you get angry. That's your emotional response when people impose on you. Some respond out of shame. And what I mean is this. You spend so much of your life trying to win achievements and to gain accolades to cover and tamp down your shame that you have absolutely no room to care about anybody else but yourself. That's why you're so busy that you don't have room for other people because deep down you're ashamed and you run through the rat race in order to try and kill your shame, which you never will through achievement. And anytime someone else is trying to get into your schedule, sorry, no room. Do you know what I have going on this week? Do you know all the things that I have to do in order for me to feel okay with myself? I got crazy shame to deal with. You might not put it like that. You try to spin it. I'm just trying to maximize my potential. No, no you're not. You're trying to cover your shame through your achievements. You need those achievements so that people will say, you're good, you're valuable, you're worth something. I want to keep you around. I want to be your friend. Shame. The third one, fear. What if this person costs me too much or threatens my well-being in the process of trying to help them? What if someone jumps out and attacks me too? I want you to think of it. The equivalent here is someone who's laying in a dark alley, beat up half dead. That's what this road was. Some of you are so afraid that dealing with this person is going to threaten you or your well-being. I'm afraid that it's going to, I'm going to share their fate if I shoulder the burden. What, what's going to happen to me? If I give to this person, then who's going to take care of me? If I give to relieve need, how will I have enough? I'm afraid for my future. I'm terrified. I don't have the comfort and security of having my future held in the hand of a father. I'm terrified. So out of anger, you don't respond. Out of the overriding, overwhelming shame in your, in your heart, you don't respond. Or out of your own fears for your own security and safety, you don't respond. It's safer to ignore. But we need to continue listening to the story because Jesus has laid the call to neighbor love out clearly up to this point in the story. But now he's going to lay out the cost, which brings us to our second point, the cost of neighbor love. Verse 33, Jesus continues through the story. When he saw him, he had compassion. When the Samaritan shows up on the scene, he has compassion. And I want you to note the six concrete acts of the Samaritan. One, he comes up to him. He draws near to him. Two, he dresses his wounds, most likely by tearing his own clothes in order to make bandages. Three, he anoints the cuts with oil and wine in order to address the wounds. 
Wine would have been an antiseptic and oil would have been a salve. He uses, he's willing to go without refreshment for himself in order to dress the wounds of this man. Four, he loads the man on his own mule, which means he's going to go the rest of the journey without any relief for himself. He surrenders his own relief in order to give relief to the needy man. Five, he takes him to an inn. He, does, he doesn't leave him where he finds him. He brings him to shelter and to a safe place. And six, he provides care and comfort for the man. Do you notice he doesn't just, he doesn't just dump him at the inn and roll out. He stays with him for a time. His schedule, I don't know what he had planned to do. But his schedule went out the window because something very important was before him. Much more important than his schedule keeping. Much more important than anything else he had going on was the neighbor love opportunity before him. He stayed with him and cared for him. And then when it was time for him to have to go, he pays the cost up front for the man's care to be taken care of long term. And he has a plan to return to the man. And he says to the innkeeper, he emphasizes it. Any additional costs fall to me. I'm covering the bill for his recovery. It was enough that he paid for 24 days in the inn of being cared for. Enough time for him to get on his feet. The Samaritan didn't see the man laying there and say, well, you know what? Let me tell you a little bit about the scriptures. He doesn't preach to the man and say, okay, well, my work here is done. Hope you do well and roll out. He doesn't address a physical problem with mere spiritual address. He embodies the spirituality that he believes. His spirituality takes on embodied form. He doesn't preach at the problem. He addresses a real human social problem out of a deep resource of spiritual vitality. And I don't know what he and the man talked about. But I think you could, you could say as much that the man had enough spiritual vitality that I'm sure at some point they talked about something meaningful spiritually. Thank you for helping me. I was passed by by a priest and a Levite. Because the assumption is that the man lying half dead is Jewish. And he is helped by the most unexpected person. The person who was an enemy to him. The person he would have despised and looked down on if he were in better circumstances. <laughs> Here's the deal. Jesus ends and he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? The answer from the lawyer, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Listen, I think you and I start with the wrong idea. Back to our American cultural governors. You and I start with the wrong questions. It's a function of what we have been swimming in, in terms of culture. We start with, with the wrong questions. We think, okay, how can I do what Jesus is calling us to in terms of neighbor love without altering my lifestyle? You make the assumption that your lifestyle should stay the same and that you try to fit neighbor love in if it works, okay? 
How can I give like this without having to really give up anything of great value or importance to me? How can I help people without imposing too much on my own freedoms and enjoyments? How can I find the painless, costless way of loving neighbors? And the answer to all these questions from Jesus is, you can't. Not if you're going to do it like I'm saying you should do it. Not if you're going to do it in a way that, that demonstrates the kind of love that finds eternal life. You're not, you're not, this, no. And this is where each and every one of us is laid low. There's not a single person in this room who can say, oh yeah, on Jesus' standard, I'm knocking it out. We're all some Fitbit step lowering chunks when it comes to neighbor love. We are. This lawyer probably walks away from this conversation rocked. Rocked. Because as he walks away, he sees all the people that he said, non-neighbor, 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 non-neighbor. And now all of them, neighbor? I'm, ob I'm obligated to this, this kind of scope of love? And if we're hearing what Jesus is saying rightly, don't call yourself really spiritual and mature. If you have this thing backward, that neighbor love fits into your schedule, not you into the life of neighbor love. Don't, don't, don't flatter yourself. I can't flatter myself. You and I need to own up to it. We should be rocked by this. We should be rocked by it specifically because the entire conversation begins with a question of how one inherits eternal life. This isn't about works righteousness. What Jesus says is the kind of love for God and neighbor that finds eternal life shows up like this. And if it doesn't show up like this, then you have to question the quality of your love. Do you know him? That's what is so withering about this text. It's, it's hot. It's fire. And it, I mean, it burns all the chaff of our lives, all of the smoke screens we like to put up to make other people think that we're pretty decent. No, we're not pretty decent. We're not pretty decent. When we look at the wholehearted devotion and love Jesus says is required, and we think about who we are, it should cause us to tremble. This is a powerful rebuke of our tame, sluggish, Americanized, bare minimum approach to neighbor love, which is just an expression of our small love for God. And once you clearly hear the call of neighbor love and clearly see the cost of neighbor love, you rightly ask the question, how can I do this? How can I do this? And there's no better time to ask this question than on this first day of Holy Week. Because Holy Week is the answer to how you get the governor off of your heart. Holy Week tells you of a God who had no governor on his heart for you. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't look at you and say non-neighbor? He looked at the mass of brokenness in the world and he embraced it. He became our neighbor. 
When humanity leapt headlong into sin and misery and all of heaven was aching and wondering who will help these dying half-dead people. Then he showed up on the scene. He showed up on the scene and when the effects of the fall had left us half dead, when our own bad decisions had left us half dead, when our own selfishness and pride had left us half dead, when the attacks of the enemy had left us half dead, then he showed up in all of his compassion and he looked on us in love and he moved toward us and he showed us what real neighbor love is like. The only way you can show this kind of neighbor love is if you have received this kind of neighbor love from Jesus. It doesn't matter if the intent of Jesus in the parable was to point to himself. We all know that at the end of the day, Jesus is the full embodiment of neighbor love and the only hope that any of us has for showing it is Jesus' love toward us. That's the only thing that will break you free, that will get the governor off of your heart. In that moment, when we were half dead, you gotta see, compassion came and found us. And it, it, was, it was compassion from a most unexpected direction. It was compassion from one who was our enemy. God isn't, the holy righteous God is an enemy to sinful people. Do you realize that? You are not more loving than God, and I'm not more loving than God, but he is holy and righteous. And we, in our sin, were enemies of this great God. But he who should have been our enemy, who should have treated us like enemies, we were enemies, but we were seated at his table. Hey, this is good news. He moved toward us in love. It was unexpected, and he had compassion on us. The one we despised, the one we rejected and disregarded. And everything changes as the God-man arrives on the scene. He's not who we expected. When we, when we were laying there, half dead, he moved toward us. He didn't do it from a distance. It was an inside job. He drew near to us. He didn't have any anger toward us. He embraced our shame. He didn't have any fear of what it would cost him. He knew exactly what it would cost him. And he willingly paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He became our neighbor. He came to us. He dressed our wounds. He anointed us with his spirit and deprived himself of care in order to care for us. He went without relief in order to relieve us. That's what the seven words from the cross were all about. You see him hanging without relief. Relentless judgment pouring out on him with human attacks to boot. He doesn't leave us where he finds us, but he brings us into his shelter, into his protection, and he provides ongoing care for us. He stays with us. He pays the cost up front, assuming total responsibility for the care of our lives. How do you get free from the anger that is a barrier to your neighbor love? You need to look at the one who had every right to be angry at you, but he expended that anger on his son. 
and send him in love. How do you overcome your shame and begin to express neighbor love toward other people? You realize that the busy pace that you're running is needless. No, you're not a victim of your schedule. You made these choices out of a need to cover your shame. But what if you know that Jesus thinks on you with love and values you more deeply than you could ever know and that you don't need to perform for him, you don't need to try and impress him or the other people around you, that you can spend more time loving the people around you than you do trying to impress the people around you. You're free, neighbor love, that you don't need to fear, that he holds his people in the palm of his hand, that he is our father, that he cares for us. You lay your head down as a child of God in the evening. You rise up in the morning as a child of God. You go on the metro, hallelujah, as a child of God. You get to work and face all of the struggles and strains as a child of God. When the bills come in and you open the envelope, you look at them through the lens of a child of God. Every need that you face, you face it as a child of God. And if you know that you are his child, that he will care for you way better than you could ever care for any of the children in your life. You are free from the fear that stops you from loving neighbor. This gospel and through this gospel, Jesus can remove the governor from our hearts. And so this holy week, let's make it our prayer that we would lean into this neighbor love because we were the loved neighbor. And that it would show up in the concrete ways like real, physical, tangible generosity to the people around us. Don't get quiet now. Yeah, it may be meals to neighbors. It may be you begin giving. Not only to the people around you, but to the local church because you don't give. Because this church as a community, we use our resources to give. Maybe you need to go out and buy, you know, a couple dozen $5 gift cards to Subway so that you're not passing by people and saying, oh, sorry, hope you do better. But you have something to alleviate the need. It's a, it's a thousand small decisions, babe. It's a thousand small decisions. Not, this is not heroism. This is response. It's a gifted response. So let's lean into it. Let's be this, this crazy, deeply committed, neighbor-loving community and see God's glory and love spreading to our place. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the neighbor love that we experience in the gospel. We ask that you would get the governor off of our hearts. Some of us need to pray for, the, for this every day of Holy Week. Every prayer that we lift up this week. Get the governor off my heart, God. Please help me to really digest the goodness of Jesus as my neighbor. And let it set me free. I pray that you would set every person in this room free from fear about their financial future so that they can be generous. I pray that you would set every person in this room free from from the anger that embitters them toward the needy rather than, than leading them to show compassion. I pray that you would set every person in this room free who struggles with shame and trying to cover it through their performance, even if they can't even see it. Lord, I pray that you would make it clear today. Open our eyes, Lord, to the wonder of your love and commitment to us in the gospel. And we pray that you would help us to be a neighbor-loving community. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.